series on freedom, and uh, this has been this has been exciting. Uh, watching the church respond and listening to covenant group leaders and folks that are connected with others in the body be able to communicate what what really the Lord's timing and the Lord's impact upon our lives. I think the Lord sets the seasons for the church. I very much believe that. I think one of the things that for many years I've felt the responsibility to do is simply just to find out what God's doing next and just to get on that page. And, And when you're on that page, there's so much grace there. There's so much that God's doing. Uh, you know, you can be preaching Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and, and, and people are getting saved because that's what God's doing. And so there's grace when you're just walking where God's walking. And I think what God's doing right now is, is freeing us and is laying foundations for our freedom and is teaching us principles that result in freedom in our lives. I want to raise a question this morning. This is part four of the series. If you haven't been able to be at all the the parts you do kind of need the other parts to to stay in step with some of these thoughts particularly last week uh connecting to this week do you remember the the story in first kings chapter 19 actually begins in chapter 18 ends in chapter 19 elijah has been used mightily of the lord he has he has challenged the idolatry present around him And just after his great success, he receives this incredible threat from Jezebel. Jezebel was a woman of power, a woman that was greatly feared. And when she says to Elijah, a day from now, Elijah, you're a dead man. You'll be dead in 24 hours. She's got a little bit of influence, a little bit of ability. But Elijah is a man who knows something of the greatness and the power of God. And being the great man of God that he is, he runs like a big chicken. And he ends up, if you read the story, he ends up in a cave, hiding out in a cave. It's really interesting. Just change one letter in there. He's hiding out, if you will, in a cage. He's entered his own little jail cell seeking some form of security. And the the Lord brings this question to him. Remember, Peter preached a message on this several months ago. What are you doing here? And I, I want that to be a question the Lord asks each of us in relation to the issues that we have titled jail cell issues in our lives. Those familiar places, those places that limit our lives, those dynamics about us, whether we think they're personality or habit, but they control our lives. They set boundaries for our lives. They they bring this place for us to live. God calls us to live in an abundance. This thing restrains that abundance and narrows it down to a very small space that we get to live in. And I want us to wrestle with the question, what am I doing here? And last week we talked a bit about why it is that we stay in our jail cells. Why do we stay in these places? Is it because we can't get out? Now, if we believe that, then you really do need to go back and, and meditate on some of what was shared last week. 
Because if I believe that I can't get out, it's because I believe that my jail cell has, has a door on it that is locked. And as much as I try to push on it, it just won't open. Now, biblically, that's simply not true. What unlocks man from sin, the key that does that was the cross of Jesus Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit. That's the key. So that's already occurred. That's not going to be added to. There's nothing yet that God needs to do to unlock the door for the cell that we are dwelling in. So, you know, there's a sense sometimes that we... We're praying about these issues in our life, and we, we kind of start asking God to do something. And God, oh God, would you just, would you just set me free? God, would, would you just, and we almost push it out on God. And you know what? That's kind of convenient, isn't it? To act as though, see, I'm in this place because, God, you've yet to act. If you would just act, well, then, you know, Lord, I could, I could bust out of this thing. But, you know, God, I want to be out of this thing. Oh, that's really the question. Because there's nothing left for God to do to make us more free. Nothing left. The cross did it. The sending of the Spirit has come. Those things have been done. All things pertaining to life and godliness have been granted. So if I'm not walking out the door that's been opened, it's because I don't want to. And I'll give you two reasons. I think it falls into two reasons as to why I don't want to get out of this cell. Now, here's my cell. We said last week, I'm in this cell at some point. I've come into it for a reason. I wanted something inside the cell. There was bait inside this cell. And I wanted it. There was some form of pleasure, something, something of comfort, something of enjoyment that I came inside the cell in order to have. And now that thing is part of the reason why I don't want to leave. I know God wants me outside this cell, but I don't really want to leave because I'm enjoying the pleasure. Let me give you another reason why we stay inside ourselves, ourselves. It's because we want to stay protected inside of ourselves from what's outside the cell. It's not just about the pleasure of something that's really giving me some sense of enjoyment. It's about avoiding the potential failures that are outside the cell. If I get outside this cell, if I get outside this comfortable place of mine and I'm enjoying the comfort, I might have to live in the land of unpredictable. I may have to do things that I don't know if I'll be very good at. I may have to live my life differently outside the cell. I don't know if I want to go there. So I think I'll just stay inside my cell. Well, either one of those really is a pursuit of some form of pleasure. That's what I'm after. I'm after the pleasure. So I'm in these cells because I want to be in the cell that I've lived in. <clears throat> why do I, I have a problem in this area? Why do I drink? If you drink long enough, eventually it just kind of takes on its own life form and you almost stop thinking about why. It's just what you do. It's just the reality of something that's in your life. Well, why do I drink? Well, there's pleasure involved in drinking. There's something inside the cell that I want. Whether it's the pleasure of a buzz I just, I just kind of, kind of like a buzz, man. Just feels good. Or maybe it's the pleasure of escape. I just, I just like the way it, it kind of numbs me to how I feel about things that, that I just don't enjoy. How I'm feeling about my life. It just, it can, helps me to take a step back from that. I just don't feel it as much. What's well, pleasure, isn't it? I wanna, I want to feel 
discomfort less. Well, that's a form of pleasure. That's why I'm drinking. I want that. That's what I'm after. But for some, drinking is just a reason to be irresponsible. Outside the seller's responsibility. If I had a life that didn't involve drinking that slowed me up and hampered me, I'd have to live responsibly like everybody else does. And, and, and I don't want that. It's, it's hard work. It's challenging. So I stay inside myself because I want to. I have a desire in my heart for that. Why, why do I, if I have a struggle in this area, why do I avoid people? Why am I, why am I just very concerned about being in certain settings and relating to people a certain way? Well, it, it may be because I'm trying to protect myself from getting into a setting where I don't quite know what the right response is. I don't quite know if I measure up to others. I, I might fail at something. I might embarrass myself. And I, I don't want to risk the feeling of embarrassment. I don't, I don't play the social scene game as good as somebody else does. And so, therefore, I just, I just avoid people. And I've learned to do it in clever ways. I've learned to busy my life in certain ways. But deep down in my heart, I know that I'm avoiding people because I live inside of a jail cell and I'm scared of them. And that's sad, but that's the reality. Why do I, if I have a problem in this area, why do I obsess over my appearance or over food? Why, why am I so concerned with the contours and shapes of my body, the appearance of my face, the way in which I look? Why is that such an issue? Why do, I, why do I get up in the morning, go to bed at night, thinking these thoughts in that category? Because I want something. I crave something I want. I, I want to be attractive to people. I want people to be attracted to me. I'm after something here. You know, and when you start eating the fruit of that jail cell, it's bitter, isn't it? I mean, the fruit grows, it begins to dominate your life, but it's bitter fruit to eat. And in eating the bitterness of it, it can almost, you can almost feel sorry for someone who's in that. But before you get too comfortable feeling sorry for yourself, identify the fact that you're there because you want to be there. You're in that cell because you want to be attractive in a way that is really, really important to you. If you don't identify some of these things, you, you make friends with them. Why am I, why am I a jealous person? Why does jealousy, why do, I, why do I notice certain individuals? Why do I compare? Why am I very aware when somebody else, the light is on them and it's not on me? Why do I live inside that cell? Why are my relationships restrained by that? Why will I be friends with this person but not with that one? Why, why is that going on inside of me? Why am I strategizing and avoiding and running toward? Because I want something. I, I want to be the one who gets the attention. And when I get around this person, they get the attention, and I stop getting it. So I don't like that person, and I'm jealous of them. And there's these issues in my heart toward them. Why is that there? Because I want something. I crave something in my own heart. So if you don't come to grips with these issues... You're never going to do an effective job of overcoming why you're in the cell you're in. Now, if you really start digging around in some of these issues, you're going to eventually come, for many of them, to find out that really this is rooted in pride. See, I, I don't want to get outside my jail cell around people because, you see, I could fail. 
around them. I could be less than what they think I might be. See, if I stay at a distance and I'm smoking mirrors and kind of no one really knows me, but they think I'm great. But if I get out there and I spend any time with them, they're going to find out I'm not great. And I definitely don't want them to find that out. I want them to think I'm great. I want them to be impressed with me. So what is that? It's pride. Why am I so hung up on my appearance? Because I want to attract attention to me. I want heads to turn. I want to be noticed. I don't want to look average. I don't want to fit in with the crowd. I don't want to dress like, you know, like nobody notices. I want to be noticed. Well, what is that? It's pride. See, the, the remedy to so many of these things is to get God in the right place in my life. See, if I'm really in the, you know, even just our time of worship this morning. Our time of standing before God and finding him to be absolutely delightful. Finding him to be worthy of all the worship, worthy of all the attention. When my heart gets in line correctly with that, then something in me is going to get broken that I don't want your attention on me. I want your attention on him. And see, now, now I'm, I'm moving towards freedom when I get that right. As long as I want something that's oriented around me, I, I am a poster child for a jail cell. Something in my life is going to enslave me. It's a fact. So we said last week, if you don't start wanting the right thing, then you're never going to get free from your bondage. If you don't get the wanting component right, the desire element right in our hearts, we'll never get free. So last week, we talked about a little bit of this. This week, I want to title this message, Wanting What God Wants. Wanting what God wants. This is critical. If you're ever going to be free, your desires have got to be radically changed. And you need to start wanting what God wants. Well, two questions we'll try and answer this week. One, what does God want? Well, I'm going to start wanting what God wants. What does he want? What is he after in my life? Second, well, why should I want that? Just because God wants it, why should I want it? So we'll try and get to both of those today. First, what does God want? <clears throat> what does he really want? What is God really, really after? What's God's purpose for our lives? So this, this is where we have to start. We have to revisit this question. We have to go back to this is foundational to everything about our lives. What is God up to? Why is God doing the things that he's doing in our lives? What is God wanting? What is his purpose in moments of my life for the overall purpose of my life? What, what's God up to here? And, and the great challenge for us, the great temptation in the heart of man, is to, to reorient and redefine all these purposes around me. So I start feeling like the purpose for anything that touches my life is somehow got to do with my goals. My pleasure, my definition of happiness, and ultimately we're all after that. But how many of us have lived long enough to realize we don't really know what makes us happy? You tried the happy thing long enough to figure that out? I mean, when you're a kid, you just think, oh, this toy for Christmas and I'm set for life. I mean, it's got controls. It goes around. Dad, oh, I mean, I remember being this way. And two, three weeks after Christmas, what's it doing? It's buried in your closet somewhere upside down and almost broken. 
We, we, we think we know what's going to make us happy in you know, relationships. Oh, I just have friends and I don't fit in with these friends. You, know, you go through the teenage years and friends are the center of the universe. And, and you need them to respond a certain way. And then you get out of that and then you want to get married. And marriage becomes that kind of a thing. Listen, we have oriented happiness and redefined it. And then we've reestablished the means to get to happiness. And we've changed the purpose for things in our life in such a way that we're, we're missing the way they were designed by God. Uh, let me pick on this illustration from marriage. How many of you guys have er- heard of eHarmony? See your hands. <laughs> if you don't know what eHarmony is, welcome to Earth. And uh, eHarmony is some kind of a, an offer to, to bring men and women together they do some kind of a computer profile of who you are. You say all of your strengths and weaknesses and characterizations and life experiences. And, and what eHarmony tries to do is they try to match you up with somebody who's, who's just like you, that, that you're just going to be in harmony. This is going to be a good, harmonious element. Now, do you, do you realize why this is so attractive for some folks? Because we live in an age where marriage and the purpose for marriage, listen, the purpose for marriage has been completely redefined. Marriage today, it doesn't sound anything like the Bible. E-harmony and that approach to marriage, it advertises what we're after. I'm after a relationship that will cost me as little as possible, will be as convenient as possible, will require me to work at this relationship as little as I possibly can. Let's interview. Let's check you out. Do you like all the things I like? Were you just like me? Because, you know, that'd be great because, you really, see, I don't really want to have to change to relate to you. I'd just like to stay just like I am. Welcome to eHarmony. And what's being sold is, you know... I think people who watch eHarmony and they watch these people tell their story, they hug, and there's this, oh, it's the ultimate relationship. You see, I can stay just like me when I'm married to her. It's great. And you should have done that when you got married. And everybody watching is going, my wife ain't nothing like me. (laughs) Thinking, man, I must have made a mistake. I mean, golly, that's that's challenging for me. Yeah. This modern redefinition removes a a vital purpose of God in this particular, I'm just using one example, this particular dynamic that God has brought into our life. You know, nothing could be more obvious of, of the key role of the influence of someone different than you, that when God designed marriage, he designed it for a man and a woman, instantly, you're different in a myriad of ways. <laughs> he didn't design it for man and a man who both love LSU football equally. You guys, you would really be a great couple. You know, he designed it for a man and a woman. Now, now whether, whether your wife tolerates sports or loves sports, she is still a woman. And you guys are different in all kinds of ways. And God designed it that way. And so if, you know, if you're marrying somebody, it's like, you know, I'm a, I'm a late night person and she's an early morning person. Or, you know, she's left brain, I'm right brain. And, you know, she's this and I'm that. And you think, oh, did I marry the right person? 
Because uh, it's just sometimes we just don't see things the same way. Um, yeah. And you married the right person. And that person's doing to you exactly what marriage was designed to do. What do you mean? <laughs> it's, it's forcing you to change, isn't it? Oh, no, listen, if you don't get on board with this, guess what you're going to do after seven years? You're going to itch and divorce. I just don't like the way this feels. It's just not working out. There are irreconcilable differences. There's no such thing as irreconcilable differences. Just stubborn sinners. I mean, I refuse to come to where you are. I want life to orient around me, and you won't orbit around me. So we're irreconcilable. I mean, that's really the truth. I mean, can you imagine, do you think eHarmony would have plugged together, oh, I don't know, Jesus Christ and me? <laughs> would that have been a marriage that, he, that eHarmony would have put together? Would eHarmony have taken all the characteristics of Christ and who he's like and his background and his experience in life and then looked at our resume, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and said, ah, oh, now this will be a good marriage. Can you imagine? There isn't two individuals more different than sinful human beings who are completely oriented around themselves and the God of grace and mercy to whom is due all honor. But yet that's who God joined together. And then he turns around and Paul gives this great explanation of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. We all get counseled out of it before we get married. The role of the husband, the role of the wife, and for this cause, the man shall leave his father and his mother, shall cleave to his wife, the two shall become one. And then Paul stops, like he throws the brakes on, and there's a screech heard, and he stops and he says, Wow, but you know, this mystery is great, but I'm really speaking in reference to Christ and the church. And instantly, all of a sudden, you realize your marriage is about something you never thought it was about. It's about displaying the glory of God in two becoming one. That's what it's about. It's about the mystery of how Christ and the bride of Christ become one. And the glory of God is seen in that relationship. And then your marriage is an opportunity for that to get expressed as well. Two individuals, very different, coming together to express something great about God. And if you and your wife are very, very different, then I would imagine your marriage even has a greater opportunity to display the glory of God as the two of you deny yourselves lay down your life for somebody who's not just like you you know how easy it is to lay down your life for somebody who's just like you but you like the same flavor of stuff like to always go to the same events do the same things no really honey you you choose really no 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 I'm good I'm gonna do whatever you want I just know that you're going to do what I want anyway. That's real easy to lay down your life when it's in that category. It's another thing to lay down your life for somebody whose choice isn't going to be what you like. Whose temperament is not like yours. Who doesn't bump into life and respond just like you do. That's a different issue, isn't it? And in that moment, I have the opportunity to be like Christ, who laid down his life and went all the way to a cross to die for somebody who was not like him at all. See, there's purpose in what God has designed. And if you miss the purpose of things, then you will seek pleasure in them in a way that you never were intended to. Does that make sense? Some people want to get married for all the wrong reasons. And they get into their marriage, and they feel like they want to 
They want a refund. It's just not what they thought it was going to be. But it may be exactly what God intended it to be, accomplishing, if you will, what God wanted it to accomplish. But it raises this question, and I can't answer it any better than John Piper here. Used this quote before. I think it's very helpful. It has to do with the purpose of God and the why element of our lives. Why marriage, he says. Why is there marriage? Why does marriage exist? Why do we live in marriages? This means that my topic is part of a larger question. Why does anything exist? Why do you exist? Why does sex exist? Why do earth and sun and moon and stars exist? Why do animals and plants and oceans and mountains and atoms and galaxies exist? The answer to all these questions, including the one about marriage, is all of them exist to and for the glory of God. That is, they exist to magnify the truth and worth and beauty and greatness of God. That's why they exist. Now, that, that is a very helpful framing concept for me to gaze into my entire existence with. Everything about my life, every relationship, every possession, every use of time, every appetite in my life, every goal I have, every pleasure I pursue, exists to magnify the truth and worth and beauty and greatness of God. That's why God made it. That was his purpose in creating it. That's why we exist in relationships. That's why he blesses us with taste buds. That's why we have abilities and talents. That's why we can conceptualize goals and desires and dreams. That's why they're all given to us to display the greatness and the glory of God. If you look in Psalm 19, I'll do this real quickly. The answer to this question, why do I exist? Psalm 19, verse 1 tells us why God created anything. What's going on in the, the planets that revolve around us? And the earth that we live on. It says the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. But all throughout creation, creation cries out something about the glory of God, the immenseness of God, the creativity of God, the strategicness of God, the intention of God. All these things are screaming out at me. I can really pollute those things, can't I? God has given certain things to us as a gift to point us back to God, to inspire worship in us. And we turn them into self-pleasure. We unplug them from God, we make them all about us, and it's all about how does this make me feel? What benefit can I derive from this? What can I grab in this moment? What can I take from this relationship? Not even for a moment thinking, this, this is created to show something about the greatness of God, to inspire worship in my life. That's why it exists in my life. Habakkuk 2 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the seas. Well, what about me as an individual? 
Why do I exist? I exist as a man within creation to uniquely display the glory of God in his image. Remember the very strategic moment where God is creating man in Genesis chapter 1? He says, let us make man in our image. In this moment, strategy has been put in place. Design is now on the table. Purpose is being declared. Man exists in order to image God into the earth in a way that the sun doesn't and the stars don't and the grass that grows on the ground doesn't. Let us make man unique. Let us make man in our image. Now, the heavens tell the glory of God, but man tells of the image of the glory of God. So there's a little different assignment here. But I can, I can lose sight of that, can't I? I can very easily forget that the divine assignment from my life is to image God. To show forth His image in how I live, what I shoot for, what I want, how I relate to people. Every moment's an opportunity for me to image God. That's why I was created. And if I miss that, I'm going to pursue pleasure in a way I'm not called to. Isaiah 43, verse 6 says, I will say to the north... Give up and to the south. Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. That's why I exist. First Peter 2.9 You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Here's why. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's, that's the assignment. Now, there's a real problem in our lives. And, it, and it, was, it was given to us by Adam. Sin has crept into the equation of our assignment. Assignment hasn't changed. We're still here to image the glory of God. But now sin... Sin has distorted that image. Sin has oriented me around myself. Sin has made me selfish, self-seeking, self-pleasure oriented. And so now my assignment is constantly bumping into something in me that doesn't want that assignment. I don't want to do that. I'd rather, I'd rather do this. This is a shortcut. This will be more fun. I will enjoy this more. This will reward me better. And sin has also opened my mind to the potential of being deceived now as well. So, so now... Now, something needs to shape me because I have become distorted. The image of God is a distorted picture in my life, and I need to change. Well, the Bible's all over that. Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. See, I'm no longer that image of God. I've been distorted by sin, but now God's at work to restore the image of his Son in me to change who I am. 2 Corinthians 3 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Now, let me change this. We're being transformed from, from one revelation of glory to another revelation of glory. Over the course of time, over the involvement of God in our life, over God causing you to marry that person, so that you could go from this degree of glory to this degree of glory because of ways in which you're having to die to who you are and having to take on the image of Christ as a result of that. And all the factors in your life, God designs work that way, designs relationships that way. 
So that you can experience this transformation from glory to glory. Now, to go from glory to glory, listen, all of us are going to have to go from freedom to freedom. Right? Everybody with me on that? You can't go from one expression of glory to another and stay equally bound up in issues of sin. This needs to be a living advertisement for all of us who have chosen to say, I'm aware of jail cell issues, but it's not that big a deal. Not that big a deal. It's a cage for the glory of God. It's restraining the image of the Son of God. It's distorting the very purpose for why you still draw breath on planet Earth. I'm here to display the image of the Son of God. And if I won't come outside of my cage, because I don't want to be uncomfortable, I don't want to risk failing. And the Son of God wants me to walk on water. Oh, but I might sink. I might end up on the bottom. Yes, you might. And the glory of God will be seen as he reaches into the water and picks you up. And brings mercy and care into your life and inspires you to do it again. And do it again. See, you can't live in your cage. But I don't know. I don't want to venture out. You know, I mean, you know, something could happen. You know, it could be painful. I could be disappointed. I don't risk disappointment. Was well, that why you're here? Have you misplaced the purpose statement for your life? Are you, are you here for security purposes? Are you here for comfort? Now, now, that's what the world has bought into, but that's not what the Bible has assigned to any of us who know Christ. I'm here to be the image of Christ. There may be a whole lot of dying going to need to take place before I act like the one who died on the cross for me. And it may be that outside of my cage, there's a lot of dying. It's a lot of opportunity for me to go from freedom to freedom, from one level of triumph to another level of triumph, the way the Son of God does. He's triumphant over sin. He doesn't live in a cage. He's an expression of triumph. Listen to this thought from Gary Thomas. This is a, just another means of instilling this purpose statement into our lives so that we can pay attention to what God's doing around us and appreciate it, not resist it. He says, having kids isn't about us. It's about him. We are called to bear and raise children for the glory of God. Most of us are inherently selfish when it comes to raising children. We're hoping for some benefit to come our way. And when we wake up to the truth that children can be embarrassing as well as exemplary, we become resentful and bitter, and a foul spiritual climate can soon take over the home. You see, I, you, you misplace the purpose statement in your life. Kids are being a pain in the behind. By God's design. Because I need something to help me move along in the transformation category. And God is using them. To help that occur. But see, I don't realize that because I've lost sight of the fact the main reason that I'm drawing breath today is the image of the glory of God. I've lost sight of that. See, so I'm thinking the main reason that I'm up this morning and living is is for comfort, is for uh, appreciation, is for enjoyment and pleasure in every category of my life. So my wife should only do things that I will enjoy today as I as I have defined happiness for me in this moment. My children should only do things that I will enjoy right now as I have defined the pathway to happiness by my own definition, which is orienting the entire universe around me. And all of you are beginning to orbit. 
around me. And I am the center of existence for all that exists. I've misplaced the purpose statement of my life. And what it's doing to me, it's causing me to seek pleasure in categories that I'm not supposed to be seeking it in. And so now, my children who aren't exemplary are a big, huge disappointment. And they won't change fast enough so that they will be exemplary. And now I'm frustrated. And now I'm angry. And now I'm blasting them. And now we have a lousy relationship. And the tone of our home stinks. And all along, see, we're trying to fix something. Yeah, you know, you can be fixing all the wrong stuff, right? So I didn't come along and say, well, you know, you really need to work on your communication with your children. Well, that's true. But if you don't fix what you're after in your heart, what you're really craving, what you really want... Your communication is destined for the ditch over and over and over again. Because you want the wrong thing. You don't want what God wants. And that's why you keep living in that cell over and over again. Here's a thought, he says. Let's accept that both marriage and parenting provide many good moments while also challenging us to the very root of our being. It becomes a sacred enterprise when we finally understand that God can baptize dirty diapers, toddlers, tantrums, and teenagers' silence in order to transform us into people who more closely resemble Jesus Christ. Now see, if I know that that's what God's up to through the relationship of my children in my life, See, I have a whole different sense about relating to their weaknesses and their failures and their attitudes and how those attitudes are affecting me and showing opportunity for something in me that needs to be changed and to be seen more like Christ. Now, this is, this is true of marriage struggles. You know, marriage struggles is not the time for you to think, oh, I'm sure glad I brought a parachute. I'm out of this thing. I'm jumping. I can't stand this anymore. Well, not if you understand that marriage struggles could be designed by a sovereign God in order to transform you from one degree of glory to another, to put on Christ in a new and a greater way through the difficulty that you're facing. Our our failure, man, some of us just run from failure. We don't ever want to fail at anything. We want to live inside our cage of comfort. Don't ever ever step out. My goodness, come to the prophecy, Mike. Ooh, I could never do that. Speak up in covenant group. Go lay hands on somebody. Pray for somebody. Have a word for someone. Oh, you know, my, I sweat when people say stuff like that. You know, I, I could never do that. Why not? Because I'm terrified. Oh, really? I don't know if I have the ability to put an ugly enough face on that. But what you've, what you've chosen to do is invite the glory of God into your cage. Yeah. I'm not stepping out of this cage. And God ain't stepping out either. He can stay right here with me. I'll never pray publicly. I'll never step out. Why? I mean, come on. Get to the root of why you don't do that. Because I'm scared. Chicken. We have a chicken altar call. Pete used to have his phone used to ring like a chicken. Well, that that could be the altar call music. (laughs) I'm chicken. And I'm letting that be a cage for the glory of God. Well, I might fail. That might be exactly what you need to rescue you from your fear of failure. You might need to fall on your face so many times where you stop caring about it. 
See, where you really love the glory of God more than you love yourself. More than you love what you're going to look like if you stepped out and do that. And mess it up really, really bad. Oh, people won't think as highly of me. Well, is that really what you're after? Well, that ought to tell you something then. You're not after the glory of God. You're after the glory of Keith. You know, I don't want to try things that I know I'm, I'm really good at. I don't ever want to try anything I'm not good at, see, because people discover I'm not good at that. Well, that's good. They might discover that God makes people different. They might discover that God can, can dunk a basketball, can't add and subtract. I mean, that might be what they discover. Well, I don't want to discover that about me. Why? So you need to ask your heart some really good questions. Otherwise, we're going to stay in our cells. God is at work accomplishing this task, this transformation. And in order to do that, he must free us from the power of sin that seeks to conform us to the world, to the flesh, and to the image of man in Adam. So God must free us. There is this passion in God for our freedom because our freedom is linked together with the glory of God. The degree of our freedom says something about the power of God, doesn't it? It says something about the attractiveness of God. I, if I find bait, right, get that good crab trap image going in your mind, that bait, you know, it soaks in the water, it loses its color, it becomes mangly and white, floating, and I'm more attracted to that than I am the glory of God. Does that tell you something? Is that embarrassing? Does that, does that make the glory of God beautiful and attractive? I find molted bait more attractive. Because I might have to fail. That's a terrible thing, isn't it? Well, God is passionate about our freedom. Isaiah 61, listen. Verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Why? Why? That he may be glorified. See, my freedom as a captive and as a prisoner is saying something about the glory of God. Christians who live in prison cells say something about the glory of God, don't they? Now listen, don't anybody get comfortable in that piece of real estate that has gotten settled in our hearts because that, that little piece of land that we dwell in is making a statement about the greatness of God. It's making a statement about the power of God. It's making a statement about the attractiveness of God in our life. And, and, and I need to get motivated for the glory of God in my life to get out and don't live there any longer. Do you believe that God is more than just aware of our bondages, but that he aims at them in order to proclaim his glory over them? Right? God just doesn't, he's just not aware that you've got an issue going, going on in your life. He's just not aware of that. God sees that issue, he's like a heat-seeking missile. 
looking to that issue in order to put his feet on it, stand on top of it, and to proclaim his superiority and his reign and his triumph and his greatness over it. Do you remember when we started this series talking about Moses crying out to God and asking God, God, are you aware? You're aware, remember Exodus? You're aware of the bondage of your people, Lord? And then the Bible tells us a story about God coming to deliver them. Now, in his delivering, God does it in a unique way. We have these wonderful stories, and we tell them all the time. We have the the ten plagues thing. There's a reason for those ten plagues. There's a reason why God did it the way he did it. And, you know, sometimes you need to pay attention to how the New Testament informs us about the Old Testament. Do you remember... Remember how this problem got started in Exodus? I'll just give you one little clue here. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now, there arose a new king, a new pharaoh over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. Where did this guy come from? It just arose a new pharaoh over Egypt, and he changed things. The pharaoh during that time would have been the most powerful, influential individual on the earth. Nations would have feared this person. His reign of terror and his ability to conquer and his ability to enslave and his ability to accomplish his will at the expense of somebody else's will would have been world-renowned. There would not have been a greater, more terrifying person on the face of the earth than this individual. That we just read here, it says, now... There arose a new Pharaoh. Now turn to Romans chapter 9, just for a moment. There arose a new Pharaoh, huh? Let's see if we can get some commentary on what was really going on here. Romans 9, verse 14. This is particularly discussing God's dealing with Moses and the Israelites how he did some things, why he did some things. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay, can you, can you just get this for a moment before I read this next line? That when God chooses the Israelites, right, the Bible's so clear on this, there's nothing about the Israelites that was impressive. That God said, you know what, you guys, if I'm going to choose somebody on the earth, you guys would be it. I mean, you're just an awesome bunch of folks. You, just, you got it together. You care for one another. I mean, you're sacrificing for the nations around you. You're just an impressive group of people. Now, now God chooses the smallest, obscure, don't-have-it-together group in order to show something about himself, his mercy. Right? I mean, he chose the dilapidated, the disgusting, so that when you're done watching that transaction occur, all you're left with is not, oh, that makes sense, I would have chosen them too. You're left scratching your head going, why did you choose them? And the only reason you can come up with is because of mercy. And compassion in God. God chose that moment to have mercy on whom he would have mercy in order to display his mercy. Now, in the very same way, listen to this next line. 
Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. There arose another Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. See, how many times in your life you're just thinking an event just happened? Well, just, just circumstances just happened, and then they're overwhelming, and this, uh, uh. But, you know, when we read the commentary of God, and we're not going to get a commentary in our life this way, but maybe in heaven we're going to read uh, the dynamic of Romans chapter 9 that applies to me, and I'm going to find out that there didn't just arise an issue or a person or a dynamic for my life. It was purposed by God. For this purpose, Pharaoh, I raised you up so that I could squash you like an ant and show my greatness. Now, God allows Pharaoh to become great in the eyes of everyone. See, if you come along and you squash an ant, who's impressed by that? Everybody in this room could do that. But if I go outside and take down Godzilla, you're impressed. Now, he's got reputation. He's got power. Right? Pharaoh was the guy in all the world. And God says, you know, I'm going to take the guy in everybody's mind and I'm going to show that I'm superior even to him so that in the minds of people, the glory of God can be seen. That's what God was doing. And interesting, when he comes and he brings us deliverance, there are ten plagues that God chooses to visit. You know, God could do this anyway. God could have just killed Pharaoh. He said, said, look, Moses, when you walk in, take that stick. Hit him once in the head and he's dead. And then turn around and tell everybody, you're the new king and my people are leaving. I mean, God could have done it that way. But, but he designs these ten plagues. Now, if you study Egyptian background and culture, you're going to find out that all ten of those plagues touched idols in the land of Egypt. They were all power sources. They were all things that people depended upon. They were all objects of respect. So God came along and took one idol after another and just went. So that in the end, we would be awful impressed and Egypt would be impressed and Israel would be impressed with the glory of God. Not with the God of the Nile who supplied for people's lives. Listen, those idols were plagues. The idols were plagues on humanity. And God came and answered plague with plague. Now you think about our lives right now. Throughout this room, we don't live in Egypt. We live in a different form of a worldly culture that is plagued. It's plague. I put the definition of plague in your outline. To cause continual trouble or distress. Pester or harass continually. We live in a society that is, is plagued. There are plagues in our society that, that gain control of our lives the way these idols did. And we become slaves to them. The plague of lust in this culture. My goodness. This culture is enslaved to lust. Every avenue, every possible expression, it is everywhere. People are ensnared by it. It's become jail cells for people. The plague of sensuality. Anything that, that touches our senses, we are just so into it. You know, whether it's the, the gaze of the blue screen, 
that touches the senses of the mind, or video games. And kids get addicted to video games like it's, like it's a drug. I mean, it's just tantalizing. Or food, it touches our senses. Or sex, it touches our senses. We're, we're, there's a plague of sensuality in our culture. It's powerful. It holds people in a particular way, the same way idols and plagues did in Egypt. The plague of our appearance-based culture. My goodness, in this culture, image is everything, isn't it? It doesn't matter whether that shoe will do just as good as that shoe. Go bankrupt buying that one. Yeah, because you've got to have that, you know. What, what's, what's the little label on that thing? It doesn't matter what the quality difference is. You've you just got to have that label on that thing. Appearance is everything. It's a plague. We live in a, in a land today where people wrestle with their image and their appearance it holds them in place. Eating disorders are running rampant in our society. Listen, that didn't used to always be. Because people are so convinced they've got to, they've got to look a certain image is everything. Cosmetic surgery going on today. Left and right, people. Implants and Botox and wrinkle creams and hair clubs for men and everything you can imagine. I mean, if you don't look a certain way, your life is going to suck. I mean, that's what you're being told. And some of us are willing to let our, man, to get gouged and to get this and to live under the restraint of eating two peas a day. And uh, just because we're, we're so buying, it's a plague. It's all over our minds. We just think of it constantly. All the other plagues. I put other plagues that are in there. You know what God wants to do in these plagues? He wants to come and do that and say, go free, go. Go run. Go run. Be free. Enjoy. Instead of living under this dominance and oh, this woefulness, and our minds are held captive, and our, our our expressions and our relationships are all paralyzed. God wants to come and display His triumph over these issues in our lives. You remember the, the Colossians passage that talks about what Christ did when He came. He disarmed the rulers. And the, and the powers, and he made a public display having triumphed over them. See, the plague that's touching your life, that's holding you in place, God wants to come squash it in order to show his triumph and his greatness. So that when you emerge from Egypt and move into the promised land, you have in your mind, God kicks butt. You stay inside your cell, you don't believe that about God. You don't see God that way. He's just not all that impressive. Now, how's God going to do this? Let me close with this thought. What does God want? God wants to show the glory of his triumph over the plague of sin that seeks to control men. And he does so by convincing our hearts that he is more desirable than the reward of sin and the pleasures of the bait. But here is our Here's our way out. Here is why I will walk away from the pleasures of staying in the cell. Here's why. Because I've become convinced of a greater pleasure that's outside the cell. That's the only reason that I'm going to be able to go free. When I want what God wants, I'm willing now to depart from the pleasure that's held me in place 
Matthew Henry says, the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. John Piper says, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. Turn to Psalm 16. Let's, let's close by reading this psalm and benefiting from the insights that are here together. I, I'm, there's not a one of us here who's going to violate our pleasures. I actually have to pull my socks up. Peter, I, I actually have accomplished something similar to you. <laughs> the anointing is upon me. Y'all stand back, man. Listen, when it comes, I heard this adage, I don't know how old I was, it stuck with me. It's absolutely, absolutely, I think I can say it that way, absolutely the truth. People do what they want to do. Oh, I mean, I couldn't come. No, you did what you wanted to do. Well, you know, I really wanted to. you, You did what you wanted to do. I just can't, you know, I just can't, I can't stop, you know. Because you don't want to. But if I start wanting what God wants and believing what God says, well, why should I do that? I put two reasons in your outline. Because I love God being glorified more than my flesh being comfortable. I'm willing to fail, to be uncomfortable to part ways with some source of pleasure for my flesh because I love God being glorified more than I love the comfort of my flesh. Secondly, because I believe God's promises about my own protection and pleasure. And that's what I want us to, as we read and close with this psalm, this is a man convinced of something. He makes some radical changes in his life because he's convinced of the promise and protection that God offers him. Not his jail cell, but God. Listen to this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Not my jail cell, not my comfortable surroundings, not what I'm, I'm okay with. In you, God, I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I have no pleasure that I get apart from you. You are my pleasure. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. And the one who, the one who runs after alcohol, you're going to multiply sorrows in your life. And you know that already. The one who runs after the God of appearance, you're going to multiply sorrows What's being advertised in the brochure is going to be bitter in your mouth and in your mind. Friends, if you're a young person, my goodness, the God of friends, it's going to multiply sorrows in your life. Their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. See, there needs to be a willingness to repent and cast down idols. The Lord 
is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Listen, if you can just hang on to that one thought. You hold my lot. Not me. I don't hold my lot. My future is not in me. My future is because of you. My future is not in somebody else. It's not in what others think. I don't need to win everybody's opinion. I don't need to become popular. I don't need to avoid failing. I don't need to set myself in a way that my own greatness is going to be displayed so I can make a way to have a good life. You hold my lot, Lord. And if I screw up tomorrow, you still hold my lot. If somebody hates me, or their opinion of me is not where I wished it were, you still hold my lot. Their opinion doesn't hold the good for my future one bit. You know how freeing that is? To be out from underneath the weight of that kind of stuff because you trust something else for your future. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. I bless the Lord gives me counsel. Not my vain imaginations. Not my rehearsed thoughts. Not my assumptions. The Lord gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I love that, that picture. No more mental gymnastics as you fall off to sleep. Thinking about this issue or that person or that thing about yourself. The Lord, he gives me instructions in the night. I have set the Lord always, always before me. Always before me. I just encourage everybody here. If you're really dealing with a jail cell issue and not a Johnny-come-lately sin, well, you're going to have to be in this for the long run. Some of you are going to see the full fruit of the decisions you're making right now, ten years from now. You're going to fight this thing for ten years before you emerge with that thing barely in the distance to where you can remember what it was like. But it's so far into you now. It'll be ten years before you're there. Don't stop. Set the Lord always before you. And keep moving. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Not great to be afraid. Not to be afraid anymore. Here's a great definition for freedom. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. That's a great definition for freedom. I know if you're free, that should describe us. But you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, here's why. Here's why this whole verse is true. This whole psalm gets built out of this thought. You make known to me the path of life, God's purpose. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know what another day you're going to run out of that jail cell? It's when you get convinced the pleasure out there is better than whatever you think the pleasure is in here. When you get convinced of that, you're going to run through a door that's already been opened. And you're going to taste something in God. When you get convinced... God will deliver on the goods. He'll reward you. He'll bless you. His promises will protect you. But you've got to get convinced. Let's stand up together.
just close your eyes. I want to read this last thought to you. And just consider the nuances of how this is said. How do you fight the pleasure of sin? I'll tell you. With another pleasure. Holiness is not attained, at least not in lasting, life-changing way, merely through prohibitions, threats, fear, or shame-based appeals. Holiness is attained by believing in, trusting, banking on, resting in, savoring and cherishing God's promise of a superior happiness that comes only by falling in love with Jesus. The power that the pleasure of sin exerts on the human soul will ultimately be overcome only by the superior power of the pleasure of knowing and being known, loving and being loved by God in Christ. Lord, throughout this room, Lord, throughout this room, there are There are struggles. There are those who have lived a captive life. There are those who for years have not known what it is to live outside a world restrained by some deceitful concept, some lie, some idol to be squashed underneath the feet of your triumph. Lord, what you must do in our hearts this morning is, Lord, you must triumph in the category of will you be able to satisfy us? Lord, let our hearts wrestle with the question, do we believe the pleasures in your right hand will be sufficient for us? Do we believe that in your presence is fullness of joy? Are we convinced that the God of great power, the God of mercy and the God of compassion, the God of loving kindness, the God who comes with abundant life, do we believe your reward is greater than the reward of sin? Do we believe you will protect us better than our jail cells could protect us? Do we want what you want? A revelation of your glory in our lives. I want to speak just for a moment to some of you that are here. You've been attending. You're identifying with the struggle that's in your life. And you're here because of it. Really, you've come because you want some relief from this controlling issue in your life. You're hearing things that that are very appealing. But some of you need to take step number one. You need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You stop where you are. Ask yourself this question. Have you ever truly signed over your life to Christ?
took the deed of ownership and forfeited your plans for your future, your ownership, and invited him as you scratched your name out and asked him, here, you sign. I give this to you. It's not my life anymore. I find you more trustworthy to lead me into the future than I do myself. If that's something you've never done, right now, right now, you turn to God right now. And you tell God you want to do that. You offer God your life. Don't don't attach any strings. Don't, Don't put any conditions out there on Him. He loves you. He's proven that. He died on a cross to set you free, to know the abundance of His life, His forgiveness, His joy. There shouldn't be any question. Stop right now and say, Lord, here's my life. I surrender to you. This day, July 22, 2006, I've owned my life long enough. I've proven to myself I don't do a good job. I'm confused. I don't know where to head next. But but I trust that you do. And I give my life over to you. Here, you sign. It's yours now. And I'm willing to follow you wherever you lead me. I'm willing to learn of you more. I'm willing to repent and turn away from my own sins. Everything that I know that's displeasing to you, I'm willing right now to lay them down and to receive from you the life that you have from me from this day forward. If in your heart you prayed that prayer, what an amazing thing God has, has just done in your life. He's forgiven your sins. He's opened a way of relationship with you. And he wants to begin to pour into your life power and ability and insight and truth to really see you walk in freedom. And remember this day. Remember the day you took your name off the deed of ownership. You gave it to him. You remember this day. And run hard after him. If you'd like maybe somebody to just connect with you, maybe answer some questions or provide something, give you a Bible maybe, or provide some materials for you, just come and find me or or Matt who's playing on the keyboard. Find us after the service. Just say, "Can can I just get some materials that would help me with that? We'd be delighted to help you. Lord, for the rest of us that are here, Lord, I feel like this series is seed planted. Seed planted on the ground that, that now we, we must water, or we must, we must await the, the sun and the rains that you're going to bring, Lord, to see the, the fruition. Lord, we must walk. We must walk. Lord, we must turn away from those things. Lord, we must distrust the idols. We must repent. We want to be like this psalmist. Who found in you. You are our portion, God. You are. Lord, not whether I can look a certain way. Or not whether my pride can be satisfied. Or not not another drink from a bottle. Not some pleasure that's coming from something I'm looking at with my eyes. But God, you are my portion. Because I believe you, Lord. I believe that in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God, bring them on. Bring me the pleasures that you had in mind from my life. God, bring me the joy of being changed from one degree of glory to another, from one level of freedom to another. Reward me with all that you had intended for me to taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, Lord, thank you. 
Thank you for the work that's going to go on from this day into eternity in lives here this morning. All for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.